Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 through 16. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Well, hello again. We've already had the opportunity to feast at the Lord's table together. He sustains us with himself and he leads us. He's our sacrifice for sin, our good shepherd, our mediator and intercessor before the Father. He's a great teacher and a moral leader. But this morning, we're going to focus on another of his roles. Jesus as our commander, our leader in the fight. The picture that we get in Revelation 1 is a vision of Jesus that makes John fall flat on his face in fear. He's the leader, the commander of God's armies, the great and victorious king who leads his people in battle against the forces of evil. So how does one lead in battle? How does a great leader motivate his army? Well, there are several great speeches in the history of literature and and in life. Uh, We think of like King Henry's speech from Shakespeare's Henry V. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Or Aragorn from The Return of the King, the movie version, not the book. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. Or Martin Luther King from his sermon, Loving Our Enemies. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience so that we win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Or on the eve of the battle of Jericho, the Lord shows up to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5. And Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the Lord says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I have come. 
Joshua falls on his face and worships. What does my Lord say to his servant? He says, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have given Jericho into your hand. When God wants to motivate his people, he does that like, like he does with Joshua. He shows up. His presence is enough. That's what Jesus is doing here in Revelation 1. He gets his people ready for battle by showing up in power. What motivates us in our fight against evil, our ongoing warfare against evil? How do we preserve our allegiances to God against the allegiances of the nations? Well, we look to our commander. We do what he does and what he tells us to do. So it's the beginning of that picture that we get here this morning in Revelation 1. This is Jesus, our leader in the fight. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your presence with your people. It's amazing to us that we sinners get to see you show up in power in lots of different ways. We thank you for this vision in Revelation 1. We pray that you would use it to encourage us, to make us more faithful, to cause us to persevere, and to motivate us to continue the fight against evil. We love you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to walk through the text this morning in Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how John begins. That's basically a title, uh, but it's also a good description of the contents of the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus, the unveiling of Jesus. There's a bit of uncertainty about what of means, the revelation of Jesus. That is, is it about Jesus or is it from Jesus? For you Greek scholars, is it a subjective genitive or an objective genitive? Well, I take it to be ambiguous. That is intended to be both. It is from Jesus and about Jesus. That's what it says in verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, God gave this revelation to the Son to give to the angel, to give to John, to give to us. So it's from him. It's also about him. That's what verse 2 says. The, the witness of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it's from Jesus and about him. And in verse 3, John tells us that we're blessed when we hear and do what this book says. So there's also a picture of Jesus that is meant to motivate us to do something. Motivate us to action. And, and we're blessed... Because we will enter the battle more aware of who Jesus is and more faithfully fight with him and even suffer with him. Okay, so that's verses 1 to 3. I, I just want to jump into a couple of questions before we dive too deeply into the text. One, it mentions John as the person who wrote this. And it mentions the, second, the seven churches. So who is John and who are these churches? Well, there's always been a debate about who this John is. Always, from the very beginning of the church, when this, this letter started getting passed around, I take this to be the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John and who wrote the letters of John, which are in our Bibles, or in our New Testaments. You can make a really strong case, and there are scholars who do, who make a really strong case that the Gospel of John ends but is incomplete and the Revelation picks up and finishes the story that the gospel of John starts. So these are two halves to the same whole, kind of like Luke and Acts in the New Testament. So I think this is John 
continuing to tell the story and finish the story that he begins in his gospel. John's been a faithful apostle for many years. It's not totally clear when he wrote, but most scholars think he wrote about 95 or 96 AD. There was some persecution of Christians starting at this time. John himself had been arrested and put on Patmos, which is why he's writing from Patmos. This is John's uh, spot in exile where he receives this vision. He was probably the only living apostle of the 12 left. All the rest had died violently. So he's watched all of his friends uh, violently killed. Okay, so that's who John is. Who are these seven churches? Who's he writing to? He names seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, Asia Minor that we now think of as the land of Turkey. Uh, And these are the churches that are um, facing some persecution. They're being pressured to worship the emperor of Rome, Caesar. And they're in the middle of increasing pressure and persecution. They each, each of the churches face some unique challenges that Hernan is going to teach more on next week. But there's a couple things in common. They're primarily Gentile churches with Jews uh, worshiping with them. And also they're all facing pressure and persecution. So that's who we're looking at. Okay, so jumping back into the text. So look at verse 4 with me. John to the seven churches in Asia. Grace to you and peace. By the way, this is, if you've read Paul's letters, this just looks like the beginning of one of Paul's letters. Paul writing to the church in blah, 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 grace and peace to you, right? So this is the beginning of a letter. This is how they start. And then he jumps into who this grace and peace is from. And, the, and the, it gets all interesting at this point. Grace and peace come from God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. He begins with God the Father. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Interestingly, this is just an expansion of the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. Yahweh, which means I am. I am, I was, I am to come. He is, He was, He is to come. This is an expansion of the name Yahweh. This is how God introduces himself to Moses at the burning bush. You're going to go save my people, but who are you? Who do I say is sending me? Well, Yahweh, I am, is sending you. This God is ruler over the past, the present, and the future. He's in charge of all of history. He's in charge of all of it. He's also in charge of all nations. In other words, he can send his uh, chosen servant to go and release his people from the nations like Moses did to Pharaoh and to Egypt and like Jesus has done for us. He was, he is, he was, and he is to come. He goes on. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. John is describing the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that there are seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit described with the number seven because seven means wholeness, completeness. The complete Spirit of God offers you grace and peace. And the complete Spirit of God is around the throne. We could get into a whole discussion about that. But this seven, the number points back to the prophet Zechariah, who shows up a couple times here in in Revelation 1. 
The prophet Zechariah uses sevens to describe God's whole presence and his whole spirit with his people. So here, John is saying that the Holy Spirit, the whole presence of God, is available to God's people. Incidentally, our second daughter, Adaliah, turned seven years old this week. So apparently she is whole and complete now. Please, God, let that not be. Though she is wonderful. And then in verses five to seven, John starts talking about Jesus. And when John starts talking, we've already looked back twice at the Old Testament. But when John starts talking about Jesus, he piles up Old Testament image on Old Testament image. There are so many references to the Old Testament in the, in these 20 verses of chapter one. There are more than one reference per verse. That's how John thinks about Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He's quoting from Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Psalms, Joshua. Like he's quoting from the whole thing, right? Jesus is fulfillment of God's purposes in creation. He's the new Exodus. He's leading his people out from slavery to sin and from the nations. And he's leading them into the promised land. Uh, which fulfills Joshua. He's also the new prophet. He's, he's the prophecy and the word of God. Like the whole thing. The whole Old Testament. So that's how John sees, uh, sees Jesus. And so he's going to pile up Old Testament images one after another. There's too much here to get into all of it, but I just want to read it for us. Grace to you and peace. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, verse 5. The firstborn of the dead the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. So a much too quick summary Jesus has defeated death. He bought all people from all nations by his blood and he is king over all the nations. No big deal. He's the firstborn from the dead, John says. He's the defeater of death. He has redeemed, not redeemed, but he has gone into death, defeated it, and even death itself is no longer an enemy to Jesus or to us. He's also bought all people with his blood. So all nations can now come and worship God together in Christ. He has released us from our sins by his blood and he's made us to be a kingdom and priests. We're going to come back and talk about that at the end. And also in verse seven, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. We're going to come back and talk a little bit more about verse seven too. Um, But I want to start with this image, him coming on the clouds. This is an image from Daniel chapter 7. If you get a chance to read and meditate on Daniel chapter 7 this week and think of it in terms of Jesus, it's an amazing passage because the whole thing is fulfilled in Jesus. He's coming with the clouds. This is the picture of the Son of Man coming after God, the Ancient of Days, has uh, uh, judged the nations for rejecting him. So he comes, the Son of Man comes and rules over all nations. In other words, by by putting that image here, he is coming with the clouds. Everybody 
is going to fall down and worship Jesus. He rules all the kings of the earth. He's in charge of all of it. A lot more we could say about that. But that's just the introduction of the book of Revelation. There's a ton here. But let's move on to this uh, picture of Jesus that Nora read for us, beginning in verse 9. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Stop there. This is like Isaiah who's in the temple and all of a sudden God shows up. When we worship God, he shows up. When we're together worshiping, submitted to him, he's going to show up. He doesn't always give himself to us in ways that we can see like, like Isaiah and John got. But when we are worshiping him, he shows up in powerful, mighty ways. Okay, I'm sitting here, John says, on the island of Patmos. And verse 10, I heard a voice saying, write what you see in a book, send it on to the seven churches. The voice commands him right to the churches. This is the first of several times in the book of Revelation where John hears something and then turns to look at what he's heard. Okay, so normally when he looks, when he turns to look, he will see something that will deepen what he's heard. So far, he hasn't heard all that much, right? Just right to the churches. But keep your eye out for when John hears something and then when he turns to look at it, that's going to show up a whole bunch of times. So when he turns to look, I turned to see the voice that was speaking. I saw seven lampstands and like a, one like a son of man clothed with a robe and a golden sash. The hairs of his head are white like white wool like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. Feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he holds seven stars. From his mouth comes a two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Whoa. This is not Jesus like welcoming children, like graciously welcoming sinners, that kind of thing. This is a crazy image of Jesus. And the image, again, piles up Old Testament references. They're just like piling up at this point. Begins, he's one like a son of man, verse 13. Again, pointing back to the Son of Man image from Daniel chapter 7. He's a Son of Man. That is, he's the king and ruler over all the nations. He's clothed with a robe and a golden sash. This is priestly clothing. So he's a ruler and a priest. Verse 14. The hairs of his head are white like white wool like snow. This is the image of the Ancient of Days also from Daniel 7. So not only is he the son of man from Daniel 7, he's also God himself from Daniel 7. God who judges and rules over the nations. So now we've got, I mean, the stuff is just piling up. He's judge, God, king, priest. Verse 15, he's got a voice that sounds like roaring waters. That is like the voice of Yahweh, the Lord, giving the law at Sinai to Moses. So judge, king, priest, God, lawgiver. And then a two-edged sword from his mouth in verse 16. This is a reference to Isaiah 11, where the root of Jesse, the messianic king and ruler, will rule over the nations by the rod from his mouth. So now we've got Messiah, judge, king, priest, God, lawgiver. Like he's the whole, again, 
John sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. He's the whole thing. And then the voice commands. In verse uh, 17, when I saw him, John does the right thing. I fell at his feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Uh, This is the common line whenever God shows up to people, right? Don't be afraid. They usually fall down in fear because they know they're about to die. And God says, no, don't be afraid. He says, I'm the first and the last. The living one. I've died, but behold, I'm alive forever. I have the keys of death and Hades. He has defeated death and he's in control of it. He's the one who actually went into death and then busted his way out. He stole the keys and busted his way out and now he's in charge. So when we're dead, we're not beyond him. Thank God. We can also enter into death with confidence that he has the power and the will to raise us up again. He tells John to write what he sees to these seven churches in verse 19. And then in 20, he explains a little bit. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven stars are the angels of the churches, seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he holds the church in his hand, is what he's saying. He is not far from us. He is near to us. Okay. I want to try and summarize that a little bit. Who is our leader in this fight? Well, he's the son of man from Daniel 7. Ruler over defeated empires and in fact, ruler over all nations. He is the priest, the one who reveals God to humanity and takes humanity and intercedes for humanity before God and God's presence in creation. He is the judge and lawgiver. He announces the law He decides what is to happen to the nations and he has the power to execute judgment against all who fail to follow the law and reject him. And he has risen from the dead. He has defeated death. He controls who dies and whether they can be raised again. He's in charge of the very worst weapon, death, that people can use against one another. If he has defeated death, then nothing can defeat him again. Nothing also can come against those of us who take refuge in him. So because he is who he is, he is invincible against the forces of evil. There is no one in creation who can defeat him, which means we can remain faithful to him because he has us in his control. So then, this is our leader in the fight. So who are we? And how can we follow him as our leader? So I want to look back at a couple references from verses 5 to 7 again. Where John describes who we are. Verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That is, we are the beloved of God. Released from sin by his blood. John describes us as God's beloved one. He made us for intimacy with himself. If you were, if you were with us last week, I used the fairy tale story 
to try and describe what is happening in Revelation. And in the fairy tale, the king makes the bride for his son, the prince. This is us. We are the bride of Christ. God made us so that we might be intimate in intimate marriage to Jesus. But we chose sin. And so Jesus came to set us free from slavery to sin by his blood. He accomplished our freedom by his death on the cross. His bride was won by his death for her. Our bridegroom cared so much for us that he died to set us free. So then, we can be passionate followers after him. Too often I think we get stuck with this image of sin management. I got to not sin. I got to stop sinning. This sin is destroying me. When we focus on sin, we can get, we become enslaved to sin in a different way, don't we? Sin becomes the thing that we're always worried about. When we focus instead on Jesus, we can passionately follow him. He gives us opportunity and joy and grace and peace. When we focus on our sin and the sins of others, we become smaller, more judgmental kinds of people. When we focus on Jesus, we become free from sin. We become more gracious and more joyful. Jesus loves us so much that he died for us to release us from our sin. So do you know that this amazing judge, ruler, commander, king, priest loves you? He wants to spend eternity with you. He made you for that purpose. So it's our joy to follow a commander that loves us so passionately. Okay, second image. So we're his beloved, bought by his blood. Verse six, he made us to be a kingdom and priests to his God. This is picking up again, Old Testament reference, picking up again, On Exodus, from Exodus 19, where Yahweh describes Israel as a kingdom of priests. John takes that language and applies it to the church. Language applied to Israel in the Old Testament now is applied to the church. And this will be a common move that John makes over and over again. He's going to take language that belonged to Israel and apply it to us in the church. For John, the church is Israel, is the new Israel. And the language he uses here is kingdom and priests. The church is a kingdom. We're not a voluntary society within the nations. We're not a group of worshipers. We are a kingdom. The people of the one true king, the true king who rules over all other kings whether they acknowledge him or not, whether they rebel against him or not. He is king and we are his kingdom. Christ intends us to show the nations how to live. We are the true kingdom, the people set aside for God, who show the nations how to care for the needy, how to reconcile with one another, what a just and fair economic system looks like, how to avoid worshiping self-serving leaders. Those are just some of our roles in the nations. We live like servants of Christ. We are not citizens of the other nations. And we're not just a kingdom. We are a kingdom and priests. Peter describes us as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. We're a kingdom that mediates God's presence to the world. And we're intercessors for the world before God. 
So as we live like servants of Christ among the nations here in Babylon, we show the nations what God is like. He is just, holy, caring, gracious. As a kingdom of priests, we get to show that off to the nations. So Jesus is inviting us to live as a different kind of kingdom. Yesterday was World Refugee Day, and several refugees were sworn in as American citizens, and we welcome them as our neighbors. But their new citizenship as Americans doesn't have anything like the eternal impact that our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven has. So let's be people who keep our eyes open for immigrants seeking refuge in the kingdom of God. Just like we were refugees, let's keep our eyes open and keep the welcome open for refugees from the nations. This is a kingdom of infinite welcome and hospitality. We are a kingdom and priests for our God. A third image. So we're beloved, bought by his blood. We're a kingdom and priests. And then in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. We are wailers or mourners because we have pierced him. This is a reference, again, to the Old Testament, from Zechariah chapter 12. In the prophet Zechariah, the Lord says that all the tribes of Israel will wail for him that they have pierced. That is, they will mourn with holy sorrow of repentance because they have turned away from their Messiah. But they repent, and so God draws them back, and they are as people again. John has taken that quote from Zechariah and again used it to refer to the church, not the tribes of Israel, but the tribes of the earth, he says. So, so we are the ones who mourn over what we have done to Jesus. We are those who have pierced him with our sin. We participated in causing his death. And so we are mourners for the evil that we cause and for the evil that we continue to participate in. Whether by choice or not, we still cause evil and participate in it. And in a divided culture, we too easily defend what we see as our side against criticism. This too is an evil. I confess, I don't have answers for all the hard questions, but not having answers shouldn't prevent us from mourning when we see evil done to those who bear God's image. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that those who, that what we do to the least of these, we have done to him. We should be able to mourn and wail when we see ourselves doing evil to the least of these. We must be people who mourn for evil. The evil of killing unborn babies made in God's image, as well as the evil of tearing families apart at our nation's borders. The evil of sexual abuse in Hollywood, in Washington, and in the church. The evils of racism, economic exploitation of the poor, cultural pride, materialism, pride in our technology, the culture's lies, believing those lies. We need to have clear eyes about all sin, not just the sin of those on the other side. Jesus tells us that how we treat the least of these is how we treat him. When we mistreat the hungry, the homeless, the orphan, the broken child, the widow, the asylum seeker, the refugee, those damaged by more by war, we are mistreating Christ himself. Jesus invites us to mourn for all of those mistreatments, for all of our sin. 
And I'm convinced that we can both look to Jesus and celebrate his victory while mourning for sin. We can do both. We can celebrate our salvation while also mourning over the destruction that his image bearers cause to his creation and to one another. It's like King Henry or Aragorn mourning those who died in battle while also celebrating the victory. It's like mourning over the loss of a great leader like Martin Luther King Jr. while also celebrating all that he accomplished for the cause of racial justice in America. Or it's like mourning the mistakes that we have made that have caused damage to others while also living with gratitude for the great champion who brings us salvation. Okay, so we're ready for the fight. How does this vision of our leader motivate us? Three things. First, God is in charge. He has conquered death, our greatest fear. He can't be defeated. If he can't be defeated, then neither can we. He can raise us from the dead. Nothing can defeat us. What can man do to me? Nothing. He's in charge. Second, he leads the way. Jesus hasn't sent us into a battle that he hasn't already gone through. He went through death already so that he could show us the way through. He has already defeated all of the worst enemies. If he can go through persecution and torture and injustice and death, then so can we. If our Lord can suffer, then we can also suffer. He has already overcome. So first, he's in charge. Second, he's led the way. Third, he is with us in the fight. Verses 16 and 20 both point out. He holds the church in his hand. He's not far from us. He's not a commander standing at the top of the, uh, standing far from the battle and saying, you go there. He's with us. He's holding us in his hands as we go to the fight. So whatever battle you are struggling with, he is with you. He has not left us without resources. He will not abandon us to the enemy. He is with us in the fight. This one is our leader in the fight. He is son of God and son of man who has died and is now alive forever. King of kings, Lord of lords, ruler over all kings of the earth, the mighty warrior who defeats all enemies and the priest who brings us before God the Father. So who can stop him? Let every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you as Lord, as King of kings, Lord of lords. You are almighty. There is none who can stop you. You have defeated every enemy right up to and including death. We give you thanks and praise. Thank you for being our commander. For showing us the way and walking with us as we go to the fight against evil. Continue to glorify yourself in our lives. And continue to make us more and more like yourself. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.